of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man is an adulterer, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us, and we know that we only stand by grace. We thank you that your grace washes us and cleanses us. And as we come to this uh, difficult passage, we pray, give us your grace, that we might walk in your ways, that we might live the life of love, and that where you convict us this morning, we would not despair, but rather we would turn to you and find fresh grace again. For Jesus' sake, amen. I wonder if you sometimes feel like your home must be a planet very, very far away. When you consider the way you think you should behave and the way that the people around you seem to think that they should behave, it's totally different. Have I been teleported here from a different planet? Take humour in the workplace. The things that people laugh at are things that we just don't find funny. Or the things that people gossip about or or joke about are things not only are they not humorous, we actually think that they're desperately sad. Or sometimes the banter is about something that part of us wants to join in, but we know that we can't. Or at least if we did, we'd feel shame and a sense of sin and, and nobody else seems to. And we wonder where on earth did we come from? We're in a society, aren't we, that is surrounded by sexual immorality, by which I mean uh, seeking sexual pleasure in ways that God has lovingly prohibited it. And the expectation is that if you're a normal 21st century human being over the age of, what, 10, 11, 12, that you'll be taking part in it. I read this week that the average age of a child's first exposure to pornography is 11 years old that according to statistics for Australia, just under half of children between 9 and 16 will have encountered a pornographic image this month. TV, the films that we watch, celebrate sex rather than love. And the boundary of what is acceptable is constantly being pushed out. Speaking about a new biopic of his life just a couple of weeks ago, Elton John complained, they wanted to tone down the sex and drugs, but I haven't lived a PG-13 life. I want everyone to know 
about my R-rated life. Go to the Palms, open a magazine, and you'd be hard-pushed not to find an advert trying to sell you something through sex. Well, how are we to live in this kind of society? If you're with us for the first time this morning, we're in a little series in the letter to the Ephesians, and we're in the part of the letter that's urging us to live in the light of God's grace to us. And last week, Paul urged us, put off the old self with its corrupted desires and put on the new self, which is being made new in the image of God. And he applied it particularly to relations in the church. Well, this week he applies the same kind of message to relations with the world out there. How do we live in a culture with a totally different attitude to sex? And he gives us two exhortations. The first is this, uh, live a life of love. Verse two, live a life of love. And then secondly, live as children of the light. And we start with this wonderful picture of a life of love modeled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Just look at verse one, which should be on the screen. Paul says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And you see the picture we have here, that if you're a Christian, you are a dearly loved child of God. I wonder if you feel like that. I wonder if you know deep in your being that the God of the universe is your heavenly father. It's worth letting that... trickle into us this morning hit us again this morning some of us need to drink that in the marvel of the gospel is that the god who made the heavens and the earth is if you're a christian your heavenly father he loves you more than you know and the call is to imitate him and how do we do that we live a life of love that's not going about with a kind of romantic feeling in our minds rather it's loving those around us as christ loved us and how did christ love us We're told he gave himself up for us. He laid down his life for us, offering himself to God as a sacrifice for our sins. Andrew and Lucy Foster went to Yosemite National Park uh, for their first wedding anniversary in uh, 2017. And they were preparing to climb up El Capitan. And as they were getting their kit ready at the bottom of the mountain, a slab of rock about 40 meters by 20 meters began to fall off the mountain above them. And Andrew jumped up onto Lucy. And she said afterwards, Andrew saved my life. He dived on top of me. As soon as he could see the danger, he saved my life. And Andrew was killed. And Lucy lived. Andrew saved his beloved. And it's a little picture of what the Lord Jesus did for us. But not in a, in a, a kind of moment, a split-second decision. No, an active, considered choice. And not for a beloved but for us who had turned away from him in rebellion. And yet he chose to love us to death. And we are called, too, to live this life of love. And we can only do it if we remember the love that Christ has for us. Do you remember a few weeks ago in chapter 3 that Paul prayed we'd have power to grasp the length and breadth and height and depth of God's love for us? And I wonder, have you been praying that? We'll only be able to do this if we know deep down in our hearts that we are loved by God. And we need to see that. Otherwise, what comes next sounds harsh. But really what comes next is a loving warning from our Heavenly Father. Because what we have next is an example of what the life of love does not allow. Look at verse 3. 
but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Sexual immorality is any sex outside of marriage and marriage in the Bible is always between a man and a woman. That includes premarital sex, that includes cohabiting, uh, affairs, uh, homosexual relations. All of those things are off limits, God says. Any kind of impurity includes any other sexual activity, including what we, we think, the kind of fantasies in our, our minds that we think nobody knows about. And God says, no, they are off limits too. And greed here is, is probably, I mean, it talks of all greed, I think, but it is specifically sexual greed, lusting more and more after what God has said, lovingly said, is off limits. And you see what he says, these things are improper for us. They're not appropriate for God's holy people. They're incompatible with a life of love. So let there not even be a hint, not even a whiff of sexual immorality. Do not dabble. Be rid of it. Or as the ESV puts it, another Bible translation puts it, these things must not even be named among the saints. We are not even to mention it. Normally I try and give an example when I'm preaching to help us understand what this means. And I take it an example here would be inappropriate. Not even a hint, not even uh, name it. And I take it we don't really need it named. It's obvious. But we see it's not just the doing, it's the talking about it, the joking about it, the bantering about it. Look at verse 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. And friends, do we see how strong this prohibition is this morning? But see why. Because this is the opposite of the self-giving love of Christ. It's not a problem with sex per se. There's a French professor, and I'm not going to try and pronounce his name, but his name is something like Professor Forkel. And uh, he's written a six-volume history of sexuality. And in it, he says, Christianity's most intolerable, burdensome legacy to the human race is the idea that sex is a sin. Well, I've never read any of this professor's six-volume history. But as far as I can tell, he hasn't read much of the Bible. Because the Bible is embarrassingly pro-sex. The Song of Solomons is a celebration of sexual love in the context of marriage. Uh, the author, Christopher Ash, has written a book about marriage called this, Marriage, colon, Sex in the Service of God. And he told me that the publishers gave it that title. But the, the point's a good one, that sex in the context of marriage is not only loving, it's service, serving God, serving somebody else. And so the Bible exhorts those who are married to have sex. It's embarrassingly pro-sex. But the problem with sexual immorality is it's a parody of love. It looks like love. Uh, people dress it up as love. Hollywood portrays it as love, but actually it's the opposite of seeking the good of another. It's grasping something for ourselves. Just think how that works. The extramarital affair is an act of theft as we rob our spouse or somebody else's spouse of what is theirs. Or take sex before marriage. If we love someone enough to engage in sexual activity, the Bible would say we love them enough to marry them. And if we're not sure that we love them enough to commit for the rest of our lives to be with them, then do not have sex. Because if you do, you rob a future husband or a wife of what is theirs. And sometimes we think, 
well, we need to kind of try it before you buy it attitude. We, we wouldn't buy a car without taking it for a test drive. And so the logic goes, well, you, you better try living together to see if you're compatible. Except that sounds so wise on one level, until you look at the statistics, that overwhelmingly show those who cohabit before they get married are more likely to end up in divorce. And we forget that when we date, when we, when we go out with each other to try and work out if we're ready to marry and we decide that we're not, that breakup is much more painful if we've engaged in sexual activity. Or take pornography. Pornography exists in a such a way that trains us that sex is all about me. It's all about my gratification. It's the opposite of self-giving love. And that is what Christ calls us to but if sexual immorality robs our spouse or our future spouse or somebody else's spouse, it also robs God. Let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. And verse 5 tells us what a greedy person is. They are an idolater. That is to say, they do not give worship to God that God is due. And the problem with all greed is that we are saying we are not satisfied with what God is giving us. Somebody has said this. Uh, about greed uh, that along with greed for riches and power sexual lust is an idolatrous obsession it places self-gratification at the center of our existence and is thus a worship of the creature rather than the creator we want things that we want good things but that god has said are not for us i've got a picture in my house of a man called obadiah sedgwick and um, Obadiah Sedgwick was a man who deeply understood that God is ruling the world in such a way that it's good for his people. And he says this, no good man ever lacked anything that was good for him. It's an extraordinary statement, isn't it, when you think about it? No good man or woman ever lacked anything that was good for him. I may lack a thing that is good, but not which is good for me. And that's a profound thought. If we have a Heavenly Father who loves to give us good gifts and will only give us what is good, then our situations today, both our sexual situations and every other situation, is for our good. And that if we want something that God is not giving us, not in the sense that we, we pray for it, but we, we, we covet it, then we're wanting what God has said is not good. And if we take it somewhere else, we will only do ourselves harm. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. That's their sin, isn't it? They've been given a, a perfect world to live in. God has blessed them with everything they need. And the devil comes and says, God is a killjoy. He's holding things back from you. And they listen to the devil's voice and they take what God has said they should not have and, and they ruin everything. And think what we've seen in Ephesians. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have everything we need and so do not covet it's hard to get our heads around, I think, in a society that says we should have everything we want. That's the message from all around us, isn't it? But it is not the way of the Bible. And the warning is if we try and take it, it will only harm us. If you're not married, do not engage in sexual activity. It may be that you are widowed or divorced and, and you painfully miss what you once had. But in this state now, this is not what God wants for you. And if you take it, it will harm you. God does not say that to be a killjoy. He says it because it will harm you. Now, of course, it's right to pray that we might be married or be remarried. But if God does not give, and if God gives it well and good, 
And then the urge of the Bible is have sex to the glory of God. But if not, do not covet. And there may be some here who are married this morning and for whatever reason, the sex is not right. It's not good. Maybe there's a health problem or whatever it might be. But your heavenly father says to you this morning, you have everything you need. Do not seek it elsewhere. Do not fantasize about being married to somebody else. And you see with that warning why thanksgiving is so crucial. It seems odd, doesn't it? Let there be no sexual immorality or obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, but rather thanksgiving. And all of those other things are asking, what can I get now? How can I get more? And thanksgiving says, God, thank you for what you have given me. Thank you that I have enough. Thank you that you are my heavenly father and you've given me everything I need. And we can only do it, can't we, when we're deeply, deeply convicted of verses 1 and 2, that he is our loving heavenly father and we are his dear children and he has the ability to give us anything, but he gives us what is for our good. Well, in a sex-obsessed culture, to walk in love will be hard. The standard is high, not even a hint. And I wonder this morning, where is it that we at St. Stephen's, we individually are showing hints of sexual immorality or impurity or greed or any of this foolish talking? Where might it be that the Spirit of God is challenging us this morning? I take it this will impact what we talk about, what we laugh at, what we listen to, what we daydream about perhaps the people we're spending time with, what we watch, as well as what we're doing. And it's worth saying we've all fallen in this area. What a lovely song we just sung, that his grace washes us clean. We've all fallen in this area. And if you're convicted this morning by the Spirit of God about something particular, fly to Jesus. Go to Jesus, confess and repent and find fresh grace. Remember he's washed you. You are a dearly loved child of God. And if you're struggling in this way, please talk to somebody. Don't do it on your own. But we need to hear this warning. This is a somber warning. Look at verse 5. For of this you can be sure. And I wonder, are we sure of this? For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man or woman is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Isn't that a very strong warning? No one who lives this way will inherit God's kingdom. And this isn't the person who who battles with sexual sin or battles with greed and falls down and gets up and asks for forgiveness. This is the person whose character is marked by unrepentant, uh, high-handed, continual uh, immorality. And remember, though, this is a warning to Christians. This isn't people outside. This is written to the church. And this is describing somebody who names Christ, who sits in church on a Sunday and loves to sing songs about Jesus, but it doesn't touch their lives. And verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. God's wrath will come. And if you're dabbling this morning in sexual sin, and you think it, will not, and you think it does not matter, this warns you, God warns you, his wrath will come. Do not be deceived. And there are so many things, aren't there, trying to deceive us. Think of the ethos of our society around where it's normal to engage in sexual immorality. A few years ago, I saw an advert for a program uh, that had, uh, I didn't watch the program, but it looked like they were going to parade virgins in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, almost like freaks. These are freaks of the new society, rather than the heroes that they are, people who've stood faithful against the tide of the world. 
I jumped into my car the other morning and the Bloodhound Gang song was on the radio. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. And as that attitude permeates our hearts, we begin to think, why not just do it like everybody else? And if we're not careful, we're deceived. But it's not just the world. It's the church too, isn't it? In pulpits all around this country this morning, there'll be great confusion about what marriage is, about what sexual immorality is. But not just out there again, even in our church. Somebody told me a few weeks ago that as they began dating their girlfriend, somebody warned them to be careful not to fall into sexual temptation. It's a great thing to do, to, to, to warn in that way. But what they said next was worrying. It's not a question of if you fall into sexual temptation, but when. And if it's a question of when, that you will inevitably fall into sexual temptation with your girlfriend or boyfriend, then why bother fighting? And we must fight. We must not be deceived. I wanted to interview somebody this morning uh, about a battle with pornography and uh, how accountability has been helpful. And understandably, people are reluctant to be interviewed. Uh, but what I wanted to do, in a sense, is to, to, to in the right way, normalize this battle. If the statistics are right, it's an endemic struggle. Statistically, two-thirds of Bible-believing Christians, two-thirds of Bible-believing men, two-thirds of the men in this room will either be or have been recently battling with pornography. It's endemic. And what I want us to know is that if you're struggling with that, you're not alone. I want to normalize it in the sense of go and talk to somebody because it thrives in the darkness but as we bring it into the light, as we confess our sins to one another, as we speak the gospel to one another, there can be victory. And I want to normalize it in that sense. That's why I put on the service sheet the links to Covenant Eyes and um, something else that are, that are tools to help us be accountable for what we look at on the internet. They will not save us, but as we are accountable to someone who speaks the gospel to us, that will help us. But what I dread in saying that two-thirds of men and many women, too, will statistically be suffering and, and, and struggling with pornography, is that somebody thinks, well, if it's that high, why do I need to bother fighting? And if we think like that, we're being deceived. And see what it says, God's wrath will come on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. It's a serious warning in love. And that doesn't mean that we go out of the world. Obviously, we don't. We need to go onto another planet if we were not to talk to people who sin sexually. We need to leave this church. There are many of us, all of us, have sinned sexually. It doesn't mean that, but it means do not be caught up with those who are sinning. Do not partner in the sexual sin. And I take it there are many implications of this. One of them will be do not marry an unbeliever. An unbeliever's direction of their life is totally away from God. And do not let them drag you away. Because the, the warning is real. Well, friend, as we finish this point, there's far less to say on the second. See this loving warning from our Heavenly Father. If you are convicted this morning, if you are struggling, please do not stay in the dark. Please talk to somebody. Go and see a small group leader, a trusted friend. Fill in the response card. Just tick you want to see somebody. Send me a text message. It will be embarrassing. But what is a moment of embarrassment compared to an eternity of a saved soul. We'll live a life of love like Christ loved us. But secondly, live as children of the light. Somebody might say, but isn't all this a bit holier than thou? Do not be partners with them. Isn't that exclusive? Isn't that kind of self-righteous? 
Well, look at the next verse. Verse 8, For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. And do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say you've come out of darkness into the light. You were darkness, and now you are light. We've gone from being darkness to being light. And when we were darkness, we were part of the problem. We cannot be holier than thou. We were part of the problem. We helped create and nurture and sustain the darkness of this world. That's a humbling truth, isn't it? But then Christ made us alive. And he filled us with the Holy Spirit, made us to be light that shines in the world. Not perfectly. We often stumble and yet we shine. And so live, Paul urges us, as children of the light. Show the fruit of light. What is the fruit of light? Verse 9, goodness, righteousness, truth. And all of these are high-value things, aren't they? They're wonderful things, but it's very general. What does um, truth and goodness and righteousness look like? And so Paul says, verse 10, find out what pleases the Lord. And I take it that means read our Bibles, not just to find some knowledge out, but to apply it to our lives. What does it mean for me as I go to work tomorrow morning? What does it mean in the office, in, in, the, in the home? What does it mean this afternoon with my friends? And if there are things we don't understand, take it to someone and say, what does this mean? How do I live? It'd be lovely if people in their small groups or with friends were, were saying, I had this problem at work and I had no idea how to please the Lord. Help me to work it out. And together we said, let's read the Bible and let's pray and find out. Live as children of the light. But do you see the contrast? We are to live as children of the light. But verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Have nothing to do with it. And you see again the high standard. Don't even mention it. The kind of gossip that the tabloids thrive on. Don't even mention them. It's so shameful. But rather expose them. And I take it this isn't meaning some kind of investigative journalism. It's not about outing people. It sounds very harsh, doesn't it, if that's what it means. But rather, by the contrast of our lives, as we shine as light, show the dark to be dark. Show a different way of the world. Not to embarrass people, not to make ourselves feel better, but that they too might become light. Look at verse 13. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. That is why it said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And you see the goal? That as we live as light in this world, others will see that they're in the dark and come into the light and be saved. This is that the gospel may go forward as people see the difference in the way we live. And remember the purpose of the church throughout Ephesians, that we might be the the, the new community of God's people, those who are reconciled to God, uh, living in unity with each other. And as people see us walking in the light, walking in love, they marvel and they say, can I come in? I remember very clearly in my own becoming a Christian, a girlfriend for whom following Jesus was more important than sex. And that blew me away. So different to the value of the world. Who is this Jesus is so important? Well, there's two, as we finish, two implications of this. Don't withdraw from the world, but do be different. Sometimes we want to leave the world, don't we? We feel like Martians. And so let's hang out with other Martians because if we're all kind of strange Martians together, then we won't feel odd. But if we club together as Martians, we cannot let our light shine in the darkness. So we need to be in the world. Sometimes, of course, we need to flee. And and Paul set up these boundaries, haven't we? We need to flee, but not entirely. 
because we need to be in the dark, shining our light. But as we are in the dark, be different. I wonder if sometimes you think like me. I think I think the way to win my non-Christian friends, to to, to help my non-Christian friends see Jesus, is to be as like them as possible without sinning. So if a, if an unbeliever comes to our house, we will always if they come to our house for a meal, we'll always offer to serve them wine. If a Christian comes, if you're lucky, you might get wine. If you're not, you won't. But I want to. I'm not odd. I'm as like you as possible. And there is a place for that. We shouldn't be odd. If you if you're an odd kind of person, don't be odd. But um, there's a difference between. <laughs> now I've insulted everyone again, two times in one day. I'll just run home and sneak home. But there is a difference, isn't there, between being odd and being different. And the person who refuses to laugh at smutty jokes, the person who, at the party, when they decide to put on that video, says, you know what, you guys enjoy that, I'm going to go home. And yes, they may laugh, and we think, oh gosh, they think Christians are strange. But often the laughter is hollow, and there'll be some who laugh who think, I wish I could go home too. And it raises questions. And in a hollow world of broken marriages, Christians who are trying to keep their marriages strong, not perfectly, but strong, is very attractive to the world outside. Or single people, or or people who are divorced or, 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 or widowed, who are striving to be content in Christ rather than chasing sexual gain, is are very attractive to the world. And yes, we're sometimes laughed at and mocked, but it shines the light. And as we do that, we long that others will come into the light. Well, I wonder, are there ways that we need to be different? That we've just kind of joined the darkness? That we need to shine the light, not just for our sake, but that others might see Jesus and be saved? And as we finish, I wonder, maybe there's somebody here this morning who is convicted. You you know you're in the darkness. You know that uh, you've fallen sexually. You are living in, in a way that God would call wrong and perhaps your heart is full of shame and an awareness of sin well hear these wonderful words hear this invitation from Jesus Christ this morning wake up O sleeper rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you there's no need to hide come to the Lord Jesus let him wash away your sin let him call you a dearly loved child of God and let him and, and walk in a way of love well let's take a moment uh, to reflect And then I'll lead us in a prayer. Just a moment to think, what is the Spirit of God saying to us individually this morning? Perhaps encouraging us to keep going and keep fighting. Perhaps convicting us and urging us to flee to Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus who gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to you that every sin might be washed away. And we pray that we would know that and rejoice in that and then live a life of love, laying down our lives for each other and fleeing from those things that you call wrong, that ultimately destroy us and destroy others, that are the opposite of love. Father, help us, not individually, to do this but together to do this that we might bring glory to Jesus and that we might shine light into a dark world that others too may be rescued from a cycle of sin and shame help us we pray for Jesus sake amen